Welcome back to Ask the Compound. Remember, our email here is askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. Today's Ask the Compound is sponsored by Bird Dogs. I am still wearing Bird Dog shorts because we've had a little bit of an extended summer here, nicer weather, but we're inching ever closer to jogger season. And then when it gets really cold, it's sweatpants season. And the thing I like about Bird Dog joggers and sweatpants is that not only do they have the side pocket, but they have the built-in liner, just like the shorts. If you want, you, you can also order them without that, but I, I like it. Uh, and they're the stretch just like the shorts, so it's really comfortable. Plus, they also have the stretch khakis. So joggers, sweatpants, stretch khakis, I like them. And if you go to birddogs.com slash ATC or just enter the code ATC, you get the white bird dogs tech hat, which I like. It's, it's also a nice little stretchy material. Very nice. Uh, so remember, it's birddogs.com slash ATC to get a free hat. Duncan, you are co-hosting today from Germany somewhere. Yep, that's true. Frankfurt. I was kind of hoping that you would show up today to the show in Lederhosen, which uh, is a word I learned when I traveled throughout Germany. I had a lot of fun in my college days at the Hofbrauhaus in Munich. Uh, it wasn't even Oktoberfest. You're going to be there for Oktoberfest. Yeah, yeah. I can see young Ben having a good time in, in uh, Germany. It's, it's, a, it's fun. I just want you to bring back, me back one of those huge liter beer mugs. I'm sure okay. it'll fit easily in your, in your travel uh, yeah. carry-on. I'll make sure to do that. All right. I just have one financial question for you. Did you check that your credit card allows foreign transaction fees? I did. Yeah, yeah. Good. I'm using the Sapphire Reserve uh, for for pretty much everything here. So all right. just making sure it's kind of nice. You don't have to. I remember when I went there in college, I had to like exchange money all the time, and you'd get just screwed on the the transaction fees and the whatever the currency exchange rate was. They'd always, you know, I feel like they took two or three percent off every time. So yeah, a lot more places now are accepting cards too. Uh, when credit I came here years ago, it. it was more you know cash only kind of stuff. But now I'm, I'm seeing a lot more credit so they're catching yeah. up they're, Doge they're, coin, they're in the future dogecoin that sort of thing right, right all right let's do a question okay up first today we have i'm 39 with no kids or dependents i'm a registered nurse with an annual income close to one hundred and ten thousand dollars. i have three hundred and seventy thousand dollars in my 401k one hundred ninety thousand in an ira and two hundred twenty thousand dollars in my brokerage accounts not to brag that's me not them uh I currently reside in a duplex where I rent out both my basement and second floor. My outstanding mortgage balance is $190,000 at a fixed rate of 2.8% for 30 years. Additionally, I have an investment property, which is paid in full. Per Zillow, the estimated value of my primary residence stands at $400,000, while my investment property is valued at $650,000. I'm contemplating using the equity I've built up to further my real estate portfolio or explore uh, alternative investment avenues. I'm faced with the decision of whether to leverage a home equity loan, even with high interest rates, or wait for a potential rate change. Also, is it wise to use my equity to buy more stocks? Right. I think Duncan, it's a you, pretty impressive question coming from a 39-year-old. Yeah, he's in a pretty good position. Having yeah. one house paid off and a 2.8% mortgage on another one puts uh, Joel here in a pretty good position. But he's he, he's come to the he's realizing the problem though. He's house rich, right? And the thing you realize once you have a house paid off, or you have a lot of it paid off, you have equity is great. He no longer has the payments on the one house, and the payments are obviously probably low on the other one. But that all that equity sitting there, it's you, once you have it, you start thinking, well, what good is it doing me? I can't spend my house. I can't sell shares of my house like I could with a stock if it's appreciated in value and use it for something else. The liquidity is the problem. So 
there are some options here, but I, I think none of them are really a slam dunk. So you could open up a home equity line of credit or do a cash out refinance, but then we're talking borrowing at, at ridiculous rates. So seven and change, probably if you did a cash out refi right now and eight to 9% for a home equity line of credit, which does not sound great. So if you're planning on taking that money out and looking at other investment opportunities, that's a really high hurdle rate. I would, I would prefer the HELOC at this moment than a cash out refi because those rates could fall when, when other rates fall, it'll fall faster and you don't have to refi and you don't have to spend that. You don't have to start making the debt repayments right away. We've talked about the HELOC before. You could use that equity in your home and just sell it and use it for a down payment on a new house. But then again, you have the higher mortgage rates. Uh, I, the reverse mortgage is something we've talked about in the past, but he's 39 years old. So you have to be older to, to do that. So again, having home equity is a wonderful thing, but what are you supposed to do with it? Um, there, he does have a very concentrated position in real estate with owning two houses, even though one of them paid off. The, the great thing is you don't have those down payment or those monthly payments anymore. So you could take that money that you would have been paying for monthly payments and diversify that way. But I, I think something that a lot of people who own rental properties probably don't think about is why don't you just sell it? Right? It's kind of like retirees with their principal. They say, like, I'm never touching my principal. I'm only living on the income. It's a psychological thing where people, I think people, once they get rental properties, even if they'd appreciate it in value, they go, no, I'm getting this rental income. It's doing great for me. And the way that real estate investors look at this is, is through a cap rate. So let's say you have the house valued at $600,000 or whatever. Let's say you're netting $2,500 a month. So you're not making payments anymore. So after taxes and stuff and maintenance, let's say you're netting $2,500 a month on that. That's a $30,000 a year. That's a 5% cap rate, call it, on a $600,000 house. So could that money be put to work? And obviously, you can play with the numbers and figure out how much you're actually bringing in to figure out what that cap rate is. So could that money be put to work elsewhere with better returns? Possibly. I don't know. Maybe some people just like being landlords. You can increase the rent each year to account for inflation. Duncan, you're a renter. You know how this works. I right. actually re-upped my office lease this week, and Bill Sweet was looking through the contract with me. I've been in the same office since 2015. It's still barely standing, even though it's even though there's been a few floods and a few problems. My office is okay. I still like it. It's close to my house. And so I re-upped again. And Bill and I actually calculated, what's the inflation rate been since 2015 when I first moved in? And surprisingly, it, it almost identically matches the rate of inflation. So it's 3.4% per year. My rent has gone up. And CPI in that time has gone up 3.3% per year. Not bad. So I, it, it's, yeah, not, yeah. not too bad. Um. So I just, I think right now is not the environment to be a borrower. So he asked about, could I just wait until the rates situation is better? And yeah, I, I don't know how long that will be, but I, I wouldn't feel great about borrowing at seven, 9% right now. That's a pretty high hurdle rate. I think a lot of it depends on how much you care about owning real estate, because again, I, you could just sell the house. You don't, you don't it, have to It does to hold sound to pretty it. cool though, to be 39 and be able to like refer to your real estate portfolio. You right. But, I mean? but I think, so. I think the reason he's having this, this internal tug of war is he realizes like. I have all this equity sitting there and I can't do anything with it. Yes, the, the home equity line of credit sounds good, but that, that works better typically if you borrow to do a, you know, fix the house up or something. So maybe you could, you could fix your house up or you could, I don't know, kick your, your renters out of your duplex and, and live like a king. I don't know. I, I think, but I, I think it's okay to think about selling it, especially in an environment where there's not much supply and, and the house is probably appreciated in price a lot. And then you, then you, you have that liquidity event. And then now what are you going to do? You have a ton of money to, put the work somewhere else. I think it's, I, I would at least consider that yeah, as opposed that to holding sense. the real estate. And, and I think probably what he's thinking about is, yeah, I'll, I'll take some out. I'll use it as a down payment for a new place and put some leverage on it. And then I don't care as much about the borrowing. And I guess that makes sense too, but I would just be worried about the, the rates being so high right now. Yeah. Uh, Giancarlo in the chat asks, are there arm adjustable rate HELOCs? 
Well, HELOCs are technically adjustable rate okay. as it is. Like the rate fluctuates. It's like a LIBOR plus something or whatever, whatever prime rate plus something. So it'll fluctuate, but it, with rates this high, it, it's it's going in the wrong direction. And they, who knows, they could go higher. Gotcha. That's a, But the, the, yeah, the hope would be that you could, I don't know, pay it off with the income. And if, if you're borrowing at 7 or 8% and it's only for a couple of years and you pay off it for down payment, then maybe it's not so bad because that the longer term is what hurts you there. But yeah, good for you. Good financial position, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Got a few, not to brags. All right, let's do another yeah, one. Really another, nice. another housing one. We've gotten a lot of housing ones here. All right, up next, we have a question from Max. I'm 30 and recently divorced. I received a $130,000 settlement for a house we purchased in 2021. She stayed in the house. Total liquid assets are $265,000 plus $50,000 in my 401k. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area and make $125,000 base with $60,000 variable salary, and my rent is $2,600 a month. Having lost a $500,000 mortgage at 3%, I feel I'm stuck without a home in the current market. Friends are taking out $7,000 monthly mortgages when comparable rents are four dollars to $5,000. How is that sustainable? How am I supposed to purchase something at 6 to 7% on a single income? I've explored land purchases to create Airbnbs or purchasing a rental property, but borrowing costs and uh, high prices make this feel impossible. I feel like I'm not getting the full value of my $265,000, and I'm unsure of how to allocate it for my financial future. Aside from getting another wife to pay half the bills, what should I do? Okay, I, I understand the the consternation here. This is a tough break. Obviously, divorce it's, is... Sorry often, to hear it. Yeah, sorry to hear yeah, it. I mean, that's always that. difficult from an emotional perspective, but there are financial considerations as well. I also wonder, remember in Wedding Crashers, Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson's characters are like divorce settlement attorneys, and they help the negotiation? I would love to know how those negotiations went for a 3% mortgage, because... How much is that worth in a 7% environment? Like, do you think that this guy kind of got screwed a little bit for his pay payout? Yeah. I would have I would have done some discounted cash flow analysis, something. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say you got screwed, but I think you might have got screwed. Um, because, yeah, that's all. Yeah, I was I, thinking that sounded a little low, given what he's talking about. But yeah. And I, I, I made this joke before, but I've heard of Stay Together for the Kids. I wonder how many people are staying together for the 3% mortgage these days. Right? <laughs> Stay together for the mortgage. All right. Oh, so uh, Max here is in a tough spot. The housing market is broken in many ways. Affordability about as bad as it's been. We've talked about this before. Plus, he lives in the Bay Area where house prices were unaffordable before we got the 7 7.5% mortgage cool. rates. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of peer pressure in these, especially since he's 30 when it comes to the housing market. And it's like, you have to buy a house. Why are you paying someone else's rent? You have to build equity. I'm sure people have heard these ones before. Or he's thinking it himself. Here's the secret, especially if you live in a high cost of living area. Buying a house is not for everyone. I know it seems like it has to be, but owning a home is not for everyone. Yes, it's a wonderful hedge against inflation. It's a forced savings vehicle. It offers this wonderful form of psychic income that's really hard to match. But that doesn't mean everyone has to buy a house. Here's the here's the list of people who shouldn't buy a home. Number one, you you want to retain some level of flexibility in your personal life or your career because you move around or whatever. Uh, you don't want to put, pay all the ancillary costs that come with a home ownership. I've heard the line before that when you pay your rent, your your housing costs are done, right? But when you pay your mortgage, that's just the start of your housing costs. It's mortgage that's what plus says, all these right? things. Yeah. Uh, another one is you just don't want all the responsibilities of owning a home. It's it's all, the landscaping, the upkeep. It it can be a lot. Uh, for some people, I think if you don't live in the house long enough to cover the switching costs from buying, selling, moving, closing costs, all these things. Uh, other people, I think if you run the numbers and realize renting makes more sense for your financial situation. And I think the last one is if you live in a high cost of living area. I think the first one about retaining flexibility makes sense here because this guy just got a divorce. 
his life is probably in a state of upheaval. I don't know if he wants to think about moving somewhere else or if he has the potential for a job. Maybe he just loves living in the Bay Area because of friends or family or he just he just really likes it. But I think the last two make the most sense. You run the numbers and realize renting is better for you or you live in a high cost of living area, right? I think, you know, as he pointed out in his question, buying is just more expensive than renting. He's paying $2,600 a month in rent and $7,000 for mortgage or whatever. Redfin actually did this analysis and they looked at the largest premiums in terms of renting versus buying. And John, throw up my chart here. This is from Redfin and it looks at home ownership premiums. So in San Jose is the worst one. It's 165% more expensive to buy than to rent. San Francisco, it's almost 140%. Wow. You can you see the top really ones here house. are almost all California, right? And this analysis was done in mortgage rates for 6.5% because they did this a few months ago. Now it's like 7.3% at the latest, I think. So uh, John, do the next one, which is the most populous cities. This is like the most populous cities with the, the biggest premium. And you can see a lot of them are in the Bay Area, San Francisco, Oakland, Anaheim. Uh, it's a lot of West Coast places, a lot of California. And it's just, it's, so I looked at the, the median home price in San Francisco is like $1.4 million. Kind of sounds like a lot. So if you wanted to buy and you put 20% down, that's 280 grand. And you said your liquid net worth is 265. So it's your whole liquid net worth plus 15 extra thousand dollars plus closing costs and all that stuff with a 7.3% fixed rate mortgage over 30 years. We're talking $7,700. And that's before property taxes, insurance, HOA, maintenance. Is it really worth it to use all of your liquid financial assets and spend $5,000 more a month or more for your monthly payment, just so you can own instead of rent. For I mean, for some people, the numbers might not matter. They simply want to buy a house no matter what. And sure, you have the ability to refinance. Even if you refinance that mortgage, if rates went down to five percent, you're back. You're at six thousand dollars a month. So my point is, you don't have to buy a home just because society says you do. Especially in a, in in a situation like today, you have to run the numbers. You have to understand your circumstances. And I don't think you need to be in a rush, especially if your life has come up under like some big upheaval, right? So. Buying a house can be a wise financial decision. For some people, it doesn't have to be for everyone. I say don't be in a hurry and, and, and wait just because someone says you're paying someone else's mortgage. Because if you can take those savings, figure out what you'd be paying in a mortgage and save the difference, you're going to be you're gonna be a pretty good place financially. And maybe in a few years, you do feel like, okay, I've saved enough. Now I want to, to go ahead and buy. Then can it you makes imagine sense. how expensive California would be if they didn't have earthquakes? <laughs> I mean... That's the trade-off. The, the earthquakes and wildfires uh, kind of balance it out, but it's still ridiculously expensive to live there, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, if you're in a high cost of living area like that and rent is that much cheaper, don't be in a hurry to buy just because you think you have to. Owning yeah. a home is not for everyone. Good advice. Says uh, the homeowner, right? <laughs> fair. Yeah. <laughs> Stay away from my houses. All right. All right. Up next, let's see. Uh, I'm in my early 20s with a stable job. Should I sell down assets in my Roth to pay off credit card debt? Okay, Look you how nice this. and succinct this question is. Beautiful. What did you say? Dostoevsky? How do you, I can't even say the name. about how, uh, Dostoevsky? How you, yeah. yeah. Uh, we, we do get a lot of information from our, from we our audience We get a lot here. of very long questions. Yeah, what you see on the show is actually the abbreviated version usually. So Yeah, yeah people want to make sure that we got all the bases covered. Okay, Duncan, what's Ben's number one rule of personal finance? Uh, pay off debt. Right? Pay off your credit card debt, right? Not paying off your credit card debt each month is a personal finance killer. It's like Jim Simon's level of compounding, but against you, right? It's like in the opposite direction. So I don't think you necessarily have to pay off, like liquidate your Roth to pay off your credit card. You, it is an option, but you, I would just 
recommend that you'd use the contributions from your Roth and not take out any gains that you may have because then you have to pay an early withdrawal penalty. But you, that's one of the benefits of a Roth is that you can take out the, the contributions tax and penalty free. So I think this decision probably comes down to loss aversion versus debt aversion. Loss aversion, I've been trying to teach my daughter this lately, that losses sting twice as bad as gains make you feel good. Like when her favorite team loses, it makes her feel worse than the, than the wins feel good. Uh, so I think if seeing a chunk of your Roth assets just evaporate, even if it makes your debt go away, if you can't handle that, I think that's one way to think about it. A debt aversion, I think if it just causes you pain all the time to be in this debt and you feel like it's just a burden and a weight on you, then maybe taking out some of those Roth conversions make sense. I think you could start the, the initial first step would be just stop making any further Roth contributions and use whatever contributions you're making to pay off your credit card debt. Um, I think that's a good first step. You could also look into a 0% credit card and do a balance transfer. Duncan, we've been talking about this lately. Uh, a lot of these places will allow you to open up a 0% credit card for 15, 18, 21 months, and then you pay 3% for a balance transfer. Now, that sounds like a lot until you realize that you're paying like 27% or something on a credit right. card interest. So I think that's a pretty good first step, and that'll give you some breathing room to pay it off slowly instead of trying to pay it off all at once. And again, I think you can then take your Roth contributions, use those to pay credit card debt. Once a credit card debt is paid off, then roll those payments right into your Roth again so you can kind of play catch up, and then you're, you're in business. That, I, that's I did the Roth one of these recently too. So, yeah, it's, I mean, 3% with my track record, that's not that high of a hurdle rate in the market, you know? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Compared to Oatly options, it's pretty good. Oh, God. Yeah. So, and, and the other thing is, I would... For all your credit cards going forward, like paying it off would be nice, but it makes no difference if you're just going to rack up more credit card debt in the future. Click that auto pay button to pay the entire balance each month and hold yourself accountable to pay it off and don't let it roll over each month. Yeah, I mean, this math is much clearer if you are paying 24 or 27% interest on a balance on a credit card. Like, you got to get rid of that, right? I mean, that's that's brutal. Yes, that, that it's ridiculous. So it, figure out a way to do that. All right. Cool. Let's do another right. long one. Up next, yeah. Up next, we have a question from Jeff. I'm retiring in a month at 56 uh, with a $4 million portfolio, no debt, a $300,000 severance package, and a $5.2 million net worth. Jeff's pretty set, in my opinion, but a non-professional opinion. Uh, I'm married with two daughters, college paid for. I know it seems dumb, but I'm trying to decide on a 50-50 simple four-fund ETF portfolio versus my 55-45 simple four-fund portfolio in perpetuity. Uh, that's a hard word. It's the difference of $150,000, which is probably relatively small compared to the entire portfolio, but I keep reading about how going to a 50-50 at the start of retirement is important to avoid sequence of returns risk. I've put three years of cash away in a 5% T-bill ETF, and we'd be very comfortable living off a 3% withdrawal rate. I've always followed a monthly DCA plan and rebalanced yearly, and it served us well. It's weird that I'm stressing over this, but I would like to only retire once. A simple go for it will suffice, and I'll do the 55-45. I don't want to be greedy and have too many equities and don't want to be stupid by being overly conservative. I'm going to need you to break this one down. All right. Dave in the chat says he wants Jeff to just simply adopt him because uh, he's got so many not the brags here. This <laughs> yeah. sounds like an asset allocation question because it's like, should I be 50-50 or 55-45? But it's really a financial planning and, and even more behavioral finance question. So let's bring a financial advisor in here to help us out with this one. Nick Sapienza. Hey, Nick. Hey guys, Nick. I, I think 
I think Jeff here has been reading Michael Kitsis, who have some research on this that says early in retirement, sequence of return risk can kill you because if you start out with a bear market and you sell your stocks, you're going to put yourself into a hole. So I, I think that's what Jeff is worried about here. Should I get more conservative? But obviously, the the difference, I think, between 55-45 and 50-50 is kind of splitting hairs here. Yeah, exactly. I just want to call out a few things from the question, right? 56, married, two daughters, college paid for, $4 million investable, no debt, $300,000 severance package, $5.2 million net worth. Uh, and the question is 50-50 versus 55-45. It's a difference of 5% or $150,000, right? These are minimal differences when it, in the grand scheme of things. And he mentioned reducing sequence of returns risk. So just to back into that, we talked about this the first time I was on a few months ago. It's the order in which you get a bear market. So like to Jeff's fear is what if I'm retiring and this is the top of the market like it was in 2000 or 2008, what happens to my portfolio? Um, but he's already mitigated probably 95% of those risks, right? right. The, the biggest risk for sequence of returns is you're forced to sell your stocks when they're in a bear market. So that's, that's, right. that's the hardest part is you don't want to have to sell when they're down because if, if, if you're the, the timing of your withdrawals works out bad where you're down 40% and you're selling your stocks, then you're, you're setting yourself up for potentially failure in retirement. Yeah, exactly. You can't make it to the other side of the, of the bear market or secular bear market where you run into the bull market and that usually would offset that, right? You have to worry about running out of money. But in his case, low withdrawal rate, a three-year cash buffer. I mean, usually it's like one or two years. So he's, he's, he's gotten more on that side. Um, and then assuming he's got in that four ETF portfolio, it's globally diversified. It's not just entirely in like one specific country or sector or anything like that. Lastly, it's the behavior piece that mitigates that sequence of returns risk is behavior and impulse control. So whether or not he can stick with it, we've got a few charts here just to, you know, go down the rabbit hole for fun and, and explore this a little bit. The first one is just comparing the differences in the 50-50 versus the 55-45. The difference is half percent per year, which is meaningful, especially over a 40-year time horizon, which is what Jeff potentially faces, right? Um, and so it's well, again, look at that it's, chart. It's, really it's, it's, it's I mean, you're hugging the line there. Either either one, you're 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 pretty much going to be in the same spot. Exactly, and these are kind of like cherry pick dates, right? Well, I mean, at least we've got you know a full market cycle and and a few bear markets embedded in this, but it's neck and neck. There's like no difference whatsoever. The next chart is, okay, well, what if Jeff's thinking in terms of, you know, he's back testing his portfolio and he's thinking in terms of maximum drawdown and he says, and the way that he's gotten to 50-50 or 55-45 is not just so much by sequence of returns risk, but his max pain threshold. He said, this is the most pain that I can tolerate. Um, and, and, you know, it's at 31. I mean, you're looking at 31% um, in 2008 for a 50-50 portfolio. And then on the next chart, you'll see the 55-45 breakdown. Now, this is the Acquian Act. So this is a globally diversified portfolio. The 55-45, you're looking at a negative 34% uh, drawdown um, in 2008. So again, not really a huge difference. If you look at the long-term average, 4.78 versus 4.36 on the average drawdown, this is pennies. And so really what this comes down to is that it, the best plan is the one that you can stick with. My thoughts on this whole topic are that you know Jeff is splitting hairs, and typically when we split hairs, it's usually about something else. So the thing is not the thing. This isn't really a stock or bond question. This is am I going to be okay, okay question. Jeff needs the validation that he's making the right decision so that he can have conviction in his own plan, and he can move forward with that and stop second-guessing right. it. It, it right? sounds to me like Jeff might need to talk to a professional just to be like, tell me I'm going to be okay, because we could put all, take all these inputs and put them into a financial planning software and run some Monte Carlo simulations, and I'm guessing either one of these would show 
you know, you have a very high probability of succeeding in your financial plan, right? Regardless right, exactly. of the allocation. So it's just, you know, this yeah. is perfect being the enemy of good here and, and just being like, I need someone to help me make this decision. Just point me in the right direction. Jeff's gotten, he's gotten everything else right, but he's, I think he's missing the, the psychological aspect of this is that decumulation is a, is a different mindset than accumulation, right? He's always stuck to and been very disciplined in a DCA plan, uh, but now he's taking assets out. And even if we know the math, and he's probably he's probably looked at Monte Carlo calculations, but even if we know the math, it's really hard for us to reconcile the fact that we can take 120,000 or you know 3% out of a portfolio every year, maybe increase that by inflation. And yet, if he's read Kitsis, if he's read the sequence of returns papers, he could on average, according to the data, end up with maybe six times more than the amount that he started with, despite the bear markets, corrections, you know, dips and everything else that accompanies. Right. Uh, he's, he's obviously uh, conservative uh, enough by holding three years in cash. So that that piece to me, that that's like, how do you fight sequence of return risk? Duncan, you said it's something that you can't. Yeah, you have a cash buffer. It's a cash buffer and diversification. Yeah. That That's it. So he's got that. Yeah. He's got that figured out. So the, being conservative, he's got that that totally like tied up in a neat bow. Seems fine. Yeah, just kind of needs someone to help him. Decide. He wants someone to say, yes, you can, you're going to be okay. And we don't know exactly how the future is going to play out, but I think based on the circumstances, you're doing pretty good. It always helps to have that third party that's unemotional and that can pick apart your, you know, sort of, it, it's, you know, I don't want to say distorted thoughts, but just slightly disrupted thinking about his portfolio and really focusing on one thing, stressing over it too much. And I think one more point, like one thing that he's maybe not focusing on and and Jeff, don't mean to throw a wrench into this. You can, you've got plenty of time. You can kick this can down the road, but is longevity risk. He's 56. He, he might need his plan to last for 40 years. So he is focusing a lot on minimizing downside, making the right decisions. But at the some point, you can't constrain. Nick, you just caused Jeff to go into like an eight-year cash buffer by saying that. I did. I shouldn't have said it. Take it back. <laughs> Delete this. I'm, I take well, it back. I'm guessing too, I mean. Revisit this in five years, Jeff. Having, like, having, just get the fifty-five forty-five going. Having this level of wealth, uh, I'm guessing Jeff is really into doing this on his own, right? And like managing this. That could be. That could be. I feel like most it. people would be like, you know what? I he's think obviously I'm done good. his. Yeah, he's done his research and maybe doesn't want to take his hands off the steering wheel. But I think you can at least talk to someone. It doesn't have to be a, a relationship that you're in forever. It could be a, a one-time hourly right. kind of meeting if you want. But yeah, you can talk to planners on an hourly basis that won't take that won't take over the investment management piece. That that is available. Yeah. That is an option, and I think that's definitely a good idea yeah. Yeah. for him yeah. to get that affirmation. Right. But so, yeah. so, so my 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 takeaway is is go forward, but also you know leave some room for flexibility. Sorry, yep. you got to be flexible. Right. Next question, Duncan. Hey, up next we have a question from Lars. My small business employer uses a simple IRA. It caps out at $15,500 this year, so I effectively lose out on thousands of dollars of potential investing each year compared to my previous uh, previous large employer that I had a 401k with. What is the purpose of this difference? Why does it feel like I'm being penalized for working for a small business? Oh, you're muted. You're muted, Ben. Sorry. I don't know why there's not just one big bucket for everything, right? Retirement, HSAs, 529s, just give everyone a big, it should be like a speed limit. Everyone follows the same limit. I don't know why, they, for some, whatever reason, they've, they've done this. Someone's working on that. Someone's working on that. A portable retirement plan that attaches, I think, to your, like, your social security so number. So what, what, what other options do we have here? Because he's, he's saying, listen, it's 15500 I think the 401k is 225 now. Is that about right? For, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So the max, the max and the simple is fifteen five. You get a three percent employer match plus a catch-up contribution of thirty five hundred bucks if he's over fifty. I'm assuming he's he's not. Um, 
because of what, the what's the, the one simple that part? Sort of Why is it called simple? It's an acronym. And, and, and really it kind of ties into the name. It's supposed to be simple and easy to set up, which is why they were at one point popular, but basically, so, so look, I mean, he could, his alternatives are that, I mean, a small company, there's pros and cons to being at a small company, pros and cons to being at a large corporation that would offer a 401k, but maybe he can be vocal about it and, and bring up, you know, Hey, should we review this? Should we look at other options? You know, should we look at 401ks? But he can also save into an IRA at the same time. You may not be aware of that. He can max out a traditional or Roth IRA to 6,500 or 7,500. So it still doesn't really, you know, shake a stick at a 401k and the benefits of having those, those three buckets usually of a pre-tax Roth and after-tax account. Um, but to answer his question, you know, why do they, why do small businesses have them is because they're small and they might be, you know, cash constrained, time constrained, may, they might have, you know, 10 or 20 employees. And so they don't want to go with a full blown 401k effective, plan. Maybe, yeah. But the thinking is a bit outdated. Uh, look, simple IRAs, they, they, you kind of, they, say they suck, to be honest. Um, 401ks are superior in every way, and now they've caught up to where the costs are, it's more affordable, and you can work with someone to take care of all the paperwork, and you can have a TPA involved, and there's more flexibility around them and whatnot. Yeah, it's a lot easier um, to, with also, a company like Betterment or something for a small business that you could do it now. It would, it would be yeah. a lot easier. The other thing is if, if he has any other form of income outside of his employer— he could do a SEP IRA, right, if he has some other income. The other thing, so Nick Majuli, remember, Duncan, on this show said, well, you shouldn't max out your 401k. And he said, if you put your money into index funds and buy and hold and don't make a lot of moves that are going to cause taxes, that you can end up pretty close to the same place. So I guess a brokerage account is probably an option here, too, as long as he's not trading his face yeah. off. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, he could throw it in some ETFs. And it, you know, it's not as tax advantage, of course, but it's it's better than nothing. Yes. Um, but yeah, simple simple IRAs are kind of like DVD players. No one really has much use for them unless you're Michael Batnick, I guess. But um, they they're a bit outdated. 401ks are much easier to set up, easier to get going. And the, the problem uh, is, a lot of these. I'm sure a lot of this stuff was was set up like with good intentions at the time, and now that it's just we have all these different programs and plans, and it would be nice if we could simplify it. But the unfortunately. The tax code and the government doesn't really work like that. So 401 yeah, k are just too, too uh, complex and expensive for small employers, basically? Is that what it comes down to? They were. Okay. They're really not anymore. Okay. It's just kind of an outdated, it's an outdated piece. Maybe they initially sought out a 401k and they were advised to use a simple IRA, but things have would, changed. Would, but there is a change. Talk to the HR people about this, for sure. Yeah, I would bring it up. I think it's worthwhile. And I don't think he's really overstepping just to ask a question, you know, just to look at other options. But the uh, there is a new update. Thanks to Dan LaRosa. He runs all of our corporate retirement plans. So we do small business 401ks and such here. Um, the Secure Act 2.0 now allows for a Roth option within his simple IRA plan. So I, you know, I can't fix the contribution limit, but at least you know now you're aware of those other two options of the Roth and the uh, additional Roth IRA contribution that you can make. So Dave in the chat says, simple stands for savings incentive matching plan for employees. Ah, right. I feel, I feel like that's kind of a stretch. They just wanted it to be simple, and they just came up with words that match, but not no, bad. Nothing like using simple as an acronym for something that doesn't sound simple. But yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, next week, Duncan is off. He will be... Traveling throughout Germany, drinking liter beers and eating Wiener Schnitzel. You know it. Hopefully well, in a liter hosen. Schnitzel, but yeah. Okay, no, that's <laughs> just true. I, I got sick on it when I was there. Actually, it, it um, didn't 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 uh, didn't sit right with me. Yeah, you won't be eating. You'll be eating. I'll be eating um, a lot of bretzels. I love I love a good bretzel. 
Okay. Uh, thank you to Nick for joining us and helping out with some financial advice questions. Bill Sweet next week will be filling in for Duncan as my co-host. Remember, email us, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. We always appreciate everyone in the live chat. Leave us a comment or a question on YouTube, and we will see you next time. See you, everyone. See you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Ask the Compound. All opinions expressed by Ben Carlson, Duncan Hill, and any of their guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Rayholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.